Dear congregation, we come to a pivotal place in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism this evening. The Catechism has began, has led us on a, a path of life, as we have called it. And you remember that that path originally began through a knowledge of our misery. It led us down a dark path, a path showing us sin and guilt, our corrupt nature, and the justice of God in condemning such a person to hell forever. And we in the place of having to sign our own death sentence, as it were, and to agree with the justice of God, that we had no plea to make, we had no defense to make. We had to confess that God was angry with our sins. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them, was the pronouncement that the Catechism made in question and answer 10. And then the, the, the you, can, you can imagine the sinner beginning to ask questions, right? And the question was asked, but is God merciful? And that question was answered. And then the question, is there perhaps someone who can deliver us from this? Is there some mediator? Is there some person who can put his hand on God's justice and on our situation and somehow reconcile the two? Can it be a creature? Can it be an angel? And you'll remember, my friends, that the glorious truth at that time, the good news of the gospel given us, was that in Jesus Christ, there is one who is both God and man, has a divine nature and a human nature. And he is the mediator set up by God the Father himself to bring guilty man and a just and a holy God together. And how do you come to know this? The holy gospel teaches us this, said our instructor in the catechism. And then you'll remember it said, how do we get into this mediator? How do we partake in this salvation? Is perhaps God the savior of everybody? You remember the catechism asked that question. Perhaps God saves everyone. But the question was, no, not everyone, but only those who are engrafted by him, by a true faith, into Jesus Christ. Engrafted, joined, united to Jesus. Those are the only people who will experience the salvation that Jesus, the mediator, brings. Well, what must then a Christian believe? And then you'll remember we went through phrase by phrase of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the is that form of sound words that forms the object, or at least the truth about the object of our faith. The object of our faith being, of course, Jesus Christ himself. But the Christ that we believe in is the Christ given us and defined for us in the Apostles' Creed. And it took us some time, didn't it? Many months to go through each of those uh, phrases and clauses about God the Father, the largest section in the middle, God the Son, and at the end, you'll remember the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints, right? The church and life everlasting, the resurrection of the body. We considered those things. And with that, we closed out our uh, study of the Apostles' Creed last Lord's Day. And now the catechism brings us to this, to this uh, place where we come to question 59. And I was speaking with some of you this morning uh, at our time of fellowship after the morning service that really this is the peak, this is the mountaintop of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the happiest place in the world to be.
if you're visiting our church tonight, you visited us on the right night. Because there's nothing better, there's nothing superior anywhere to be found, any place, than the truth that we consider this evening. Because now the, the instructor, he comes to us, how does it help you? Or what does it profit you, it said in the old translation, now that you believe all this? Young people, to put it in your language, so what? That's the question tonight. So what? Why does this matter? How does it help you now that you believe all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting? My friends, I think it was Spurgeon who said at one time that there are some texts that are just so beautiful that just to repeat them is a sermon in itself. And I feel really tonight that to, to preach on this almost is to, to, to somehow, almost to ruin it. Because that's so beautiful. And that's so concise. And that is so precious to us, isn't it? I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Why is that so precious to us, my friends? Because of the path that the catechism has taken us on. The catechism took us on that path through our own sin and our guilt and our misery. It placed us before the bar of God. The hammer, the, the gavel, as it were, is in God's hand, and he's ready to bring it down guilty to hell forever. And the catechism comes and says to us, when we expect something so different, I am righteous. That means not guilty. I am righteous in Christ before God. Again, my friends, I, I think I said it last week too. How can you speak about life everlasting? Well, I feel like I'm in the same position tonight. How can you speak about the glorious privilege of being righteous in Christ before God? But that's what we hope to do. And the Catechism also does it because the question 60 follows up on this. How are you righteous before God? And again, this is one of those answers in the Catechism that so many of us memorized. It's one of those classic answers and the answer given us here is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Well, my friends, I'd like to work through that Lord's Day with you. Tonight, I especially would like to, to, to consider the Catechism, and then to show you how that lines up in this text, because Tonight, the, the catechism is so parallel, really, with the text of Scripture that we have before us this evening in Romans 3. So let's begin then directly with my conscience, because that's where the catechism places before us this evening, even though my conscience accuses me. And then those three things of having grievously sinned, never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Here is the position of this person who stands before the cross of Christ and his conscience accuses him of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments. 
And there's no wiggle room here, is there? There's no like silver lining to this pronouncement. Your conscience, my friend, speaks the truth. And it speaks the truth to you this evening. That you are guilty before God. Guilty before God. Now the scripture that we have before us also speaks to that. You'll notice that in Romans 3, if you look at Romans 3 with me now, you can see from verses 11 to 18, the apostle quotes all these texts of scripture from the Old Testament, each of them being an indictment, you might say, a charge that is brought against mankind. Now, Paul's purpose especially is to prove that the Jews too are included in this condemnation. That's why he begins in verse 9, what then, are we better than they? That is, are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now here, my friends, you can kind of keep roughly in your mind that in Romans chapter 1, Paul proves that the Gentiles are all condemned in God's court. That's what, God, that's what uh, Paul writes in Romans 1, and he argues that point. In Romans 2, he argues that all the Jews are equally condemned before God's courtroom. So Romans 1, the Gentiles. Romans 2, the Jews. But now in Romans 3, you might say he, he slams the lid down on everyone. Everyone is equally guilty before God. And then you have that awful verse in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Let's stop there a minute. Who's under the law? Now, under the law is a very specific expression. It's a legal expression. It means that when you are under the law, that you are under that law's jurisdiction. For instance, right now, none of us are subject to the laws of Illinois because we are under the Michigan law. We are under the jurisdiction of Michigan law. We're under that law. We're not under the law of Illinois or the law of France or whatever it may be. But now this text says, or Paul teaches us in this, in this text that to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. Again, the truth that Paul understands now is that everybody that is created by God is under God's law. And that's why it says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Well, let me ask you, are you under the law today? Are you under the jurisdiction of God's law? Yes, you are. So that every mouth... Every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. And I said, my friends, this is an awful verse. This is a verse of, of, this is a bitter verse, isn't it? Before God's courtroom, God stands as judge in that court. And maybe you got the best lawyer that can be hired anywhere. But the truth of the matter is, my friends, that our mouths go closed when we stand before God's courtroom. There's no defense that we can make anymore for ourselves. The charges have been brought. God's gavel, you might say, has been brought down. Guilty. Every person that is under God's law is guilty before him. And there's no defense that they can make anymore. They've nothing more to say for themselves. We often do that, don't we? But, well, well you know, we, we want to argue this, or, well, you know, to be fair, I did, you know... But no, in this situation, my friends, there is nothing more to be said. The justice of God is clear, and it's obvious, and it's certain. 
and every mouth is closed before God. So my first point, my conscience accuses me. And your conscience accuses you, my friends, because ultimately your conscience is simply an echo of what is taking place in God's courtroom. And God has accused you and I this evening that we are accountable to him. And by the jurisdiction, and under the jurisdiction, under the law under which we stand, the law to which we are accountable, we are guilty. And so this is the testimony of my own conscience in the first place. My friends, I move now to my status, my status, because the catechism says I am righteous in Christ. And we, we step back a bit and think to ourselves, righteous in Christ. After, how does the second point follow from the first point? The first point accused us that we are guilty before God. But now Paul says, or our catechism teaches us, I am righteous in Christ. Let me just say something about these terms, my friends. The word righteous here means right with God. It means that the law has no claim against you. Right? I, I presume that all of us sitting here in church tonight, that the law has no claim against us. We have not done anything that the law right now could come in and uh, we could be arrested, charges could be brought, and we could be accused. We're righteous. Well, this catechism is teaching us that we are righteous before God. And that seems a huge contradiction. How can it be? Well, the clue that is given us in the catechism here is that we are righteous in Christ. You see that little phrase there, right? I am righteous in Christ. And there's the clue, isn't it, of how this can be, that we can be, our conscience can be telling us something that is true. We are guilty before God. And the catechism, the gospel, can tell us we are righteous in Christ. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Let's turn to our text and turn in Romans 3 again. And let's look at verse 23. Verse 23. Because here we have this contradiction set right before us in the text. Verse 23, for, and by the way, that, that first word for there, I, I would change that just a little bit. Verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Paul states a general truth there. And then in verse 23, let me translate that as, let me say, let me expand on that. It's as if Paul says, I'm going to say more about that. I'm going, to, I'm going to take that a little deeper, he says, in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, and then, my friends, that's the testimony of my conscience. That's what my conscience tells me, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his holiness, and I am anything but holy. But then we have verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Being justified, again, being justified, that's a legal term. In God's courtroom, I've been declared not guilty. Well, what about, Paul, what you just said? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, being justified as a gift by his grace. In other words, by a gift means, or as a gift means that we didn't contribute anything to it, right? Right? That's what a gift is. Children, you know that, right? When you get a gift, it's not something that you, you earned or something that you paid for. A gift is just something that somebody freely gives you. It's a gift by his grace, which is the same thought repeated. Grace is unmerited favor. 
So by God's grace, he justifies his people as a gift. And then we're told by Paul that it has something to do with the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So this is my status. The Catechism says, I am righteous before God in Christ. Paul says, all have sinned, but are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So that's my status. Now we still have many questions about that. How is that possible? Okay, it's a gift that God justifies us and yet we're guilty. But my friends, in any human courtroom, if the judge pronounced a guilty person as innocent, every one of us would be outraged. We would want that judge removed from office. We would want him thrown out immediately because he didn't do justice. Let's move to number three, my righteousness. My righteousness. Now, I don't have to say anything about my righteousness because I've already covered that in the first point, right? My conscience tells me what my righteousness is. In other words, it's not righteousness. It's unrighteousness. It's guilt. But this is an important point in verses 19 and 20. So the catechism has made it clear that my righteousness is unrighteousness. But now in the scripture, we go to verse 19, which we already considered, and we come to verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, my friends, if we're going to have a righteousness of our own, that righteousness is going to be by us obeying the law. That's clear, right? That if you have a righteousness, that righteousness is going to be, is going to consist of your perfect obedience to the law of God. And that's what we're told in verse 20. The works of the law. Now, Paul says by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But let's be clear, my friends, that when we talk about my righteousness and your righteousness, we're talking about what you do to obey the law. And Paul says that far from being justified by my righteousness, my obedience to law actually convicts me even more. By the law, or through the law, comes the knowledge of sin, or the conviction of sin. I see how far short I come of keeping God's commandments. So my righteousness is no righteousness. Now, uh, in, my, in the, the outline there, I put a covenant of works. Because my righteousness is governed by that covenant. That covenant demands perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. And there's no exceptions made. That's what it means to be under the law. So that is my righteousness, my friends, and that is your righteousness. Now, I put that verse also on the outline, Proverbs 17, 15, to back up, or in, 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 uh, to prove this point, right, that I made before, that in an earthly courtroom, and in any courtroom, really, anybody who justifies a guilty person is committing wickedness. Proverbs 17, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So we still have this problem then, unresolved, don't we, of how a guilty sinner is justified by God. We, we're told that it's in Christ. We're told that it's done freely, that it's done as a gift. 
But Paul, please explain to us how a guilty person can be righteous before God. And that brings me now to his righteousness. And of course, his is the righteousness of Christ. And our catechism tells us that God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So the catechism now is teaching us that Christ's record, when Christ lived on this earth, children, how many sins did he commit? Well, he didn't commit a single one, did he? His record was absolutely perfect. And now the catechism is teaching us that God, in his grace, gives us a gift. We already saw that, right? Being justified as a gift. Well, what is that gift? Well, the gift, my friends, is that God takes that perfect righteousness of Jesus, his perfect record, without a single blot upon it, and he lifts that off Christ. And he brings that, my friends, and he sets that down as my righteousness. My righteousness is unrighteousness. There's no question about that. But now in that glorious exchange, my friends, that takes place when we believe the gospel, the righteousness of Christ is credited to me. You know, in seminary, we used to try to think of earthly examples to try to illustrate this point. It's very difficult to find one, but we settled on one that I'll share with you. It's not perfect by any stretch, but I think you can understand a little bit of this, of what happens when the righteousness of Christ, his perfect record, is brought over to us. Many times, young people uh, want to get a credit card, but they're hindered from doing that because they don't have any credit themselves, do they? And so what happens is a parent will co-sign for them because the parent does have credit, presumably good credit. And, and, and so the parent signs uh, the, the credit card application. Now, what's happening in that situation there, right? The, the child, uh, and here's where the analogy breaks down a little bit because the child has no credit, right? A sinner has bad credit. But here's the, child, the, the young person who has no credit but now the, the, the perfect, or the, again, the analogy breaks down, doesn't it? But the good credit of the parent is reckoned to that child, to that young person. So that if the young person comes into any kind of trouble, the parent who co-signed will be on the, on the uh, will have to make amends, will have to make it right. We'll assume the debts of the, of the young person, right? Again, it's not a perfect example, but still I think you can see how the, the credit of the, the good credit of the parent is credited to the young person, and then the credit card company says, okay, we will give you a credit card. We will issue a credit card to this person because this person is agreeing to put his credit on the line for this young person. Again, a, a rough analogy of what the catechism says happens. And you'll notice that the catechism says the perfect satisfaction, again, very precise words here, the satisfaction, that means what Christ did to satisfy the justice of God for our sins. We sinned. We deserved punishment. Christ was punished in our place. So his perfect satisfaction that he did in our place, right, is then reckoned or credited to us. It obviously wasn't for any sin that he committed, right? So it is credited to us. And then it says his righteousness. In other words, his, his status. My righteousness is unrighteousness. We already said that. But his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law is now credited to every believer. And the same thing with his holiness. 
his perfect holiness with God, before God, is credited to us. And the result is giving us, given us in those two clauses, as if I and as if I. Now let's turn then to our text. In Romans 3 and verse 21, we have this news given us. But now, apart from the law. Notice that in verse 20, he said that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But in verse 21, he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, my friends, to paraphrase this, but now there's a way of justification that doesn't involve obedience to the law. Or at least, I should say this, doesn't involve my obedience to the law. Because now, apart from the law, or apart from law-keeping, the righteousness, and let me again just slightly alter the translation, the righteousness from God has been manifested. That is, God now displays publicly before the world a righteousness. My friend, is there anybody in church this evening who needs a righteousness? Who needs a record? Is there anybody this evening who says, my record is unrighteousness? My record is guilt and sin. I need a righteousness. And God displays before us in the gospel a perfect, a flawless righteousness. Now, it doesn't say in this text that this is the righteousness of Christ. There are other texts that teach that. But here, God lifts up in the gospel a righteousness that is made available to every sinner. Apart from the law, you don't keep the law to build, to weave this righteousness. This righteousness is given you as a gift now it's becoming clear, isn't it? How it is that God can justify a guilty sinner. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness from God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, here comes an issue. Because there are many interpreters of the scripture who look at verse 22 there, and they say, well, righteousness and justice are the same word in Greek. They're right about that. And so what it's saying is even the justice of God it doesn't sound to, to them, uh, Roman Catholics, would, would many of them would take this position, right? That it's talking so much about the righteousness, or that it's talking here about God's justice. In other words, the attribute of God, that is his justice. You're very, very familiar with that, right? The righteousness or the justice of God is that attribute whereby he gives to each person what they deserve. Justice of God. God is perfectly just. Now, why can't the righteousness of God in verse 22 be talking about God's justice. It can't be talking about the attribute of God. And again, look closely at that text with me. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, my friends, what possible sense could we make of that last clause where it talks about through faith in Jesus Christ or same thought, just repeated, for all those who believe? Do you mean to tell me that God is a just God when someone believes in Jesus? Again, if righteousness of God there means God's justice, the attribute of his justice, then the text would be teaching us that God is just, that the justice of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. But that, that makes no sense at all, does it? That, that can't possibly be right. God doesn't start to be just when we believe in Jesus. My friends, this is the exact dilemma that Martin Luther struggled with in the cell in Wittenberg. Because he understood that to mean the justice of God. And he trembled. He shook. 
the justice of God filled him with terror. Why? Because his conscience, his conscience told him that he had sinned against every commandment of God, that he'd kept none of them, and that he was still inclined to all evil. But my friends, can you imagine what a moment that must have been for Luther and what a moment it is for any one of us when we come to realize that the righteousness of God in verse 22 is not God's justice, not his attribute of justice, but it's his gift of righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. That's why it continues. It says, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that in and of itself doesn't tell us that it's the righteousness of Christ, but it certainly gives us a clue that our faith is in Jesus Christ. Our faith joins us to Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness becomes ours. And there's no distinction. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or whatever you are. If you believe in Jesus, you are joined to Jesus Christ and you have his righteousness. You have his righteousness. Now, my friends, if you drop down to verse 26, you'll see this dilemma resolved. Verse 26 and just read that last clause with me in Romans 3 and verse 26. That last part that begins with, so that, do you see that? So that he, that is God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, my friends, God cannot be just and just, he cannot do both. You cannot justify a guilty person and still claim to be just. But now God in his grace and in his mercy, my friends, has found a way that by taking the perfect righteousness of Christ and giving it to everyone who believes, God can now say not guilty to a person who is in himself, in his own righteousness, is guilty. But with the righteousness of Christ on him, he is not guilty. And the, and the, and the dilemma is resolved. God is just and the justifier of everyone who believes in Jesus. And so, my friends, the dilemma is resolved. We started out talking about our conscience. We talked about our righteousness, which is unrighteousness. And we talked about the status that the Catechism speaks that we have. I am righteous before God in Christ. And now the details are given us. What David, who wrote Psalm 130, as we read it tonight, he did not understand all the details of this as you understand it. But my friends, the glorious beauty of the gospel is that this is the truth. That God gives us a righteousness that is not our own. And only because of that righteousness credited to us, we can stand before him and hear that happy sentence, not guilty. Now, the last thing is my faith. I'm not going to say anything more about that because you can read all those different texts four times in this text where it says, uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, we've spoken about that. And you can look those texts up. Verse 22, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 28, where this justification comes only to those who believe. My first application, my friends, is the power of faith. The power of faith. Who can possibly understand, my friends, what a force faith is? Look what faith accomplishes. And of course, really, uh, the truth be told, my friends, it's not faith at all, is it? But when we believe in Christ, we are joined to him. You know, I've often used the example in church here, haven't I, of like this fan here or this organ, right? And these lights, they're all just dead things, aren't they? But the minute they're plugged into that electrical socket, 
that electrical outlet, the minute they're plugged into that, they have a power. Is it the plug? Not really. Although the plug connects, right? The plug is like faith, but the power is in that electrical outlet. And that's what makes these lights brighten up. And that's what makes all these things begin to run. And in the same way, my friends, the moment you first believed in Christ, I'd like to say the world stopped turning. So significant, so revolutionary was the change that was made when you believed in Christ. Much more even than what I'm saying this evening. But the most significant, when you believed in Christ for the first time, a not guilty sentence went out in God's courtroom. And that's what I call you to believe this evening, my friends. To see it as a Christian. Yes, to feel... Well, let me move to my second point. Because the second place speaks about our place in God's courtroom. Because we don't feel just. We don't feel righteous before God. And my friends, that's appropriate. In fact, let me make this point this evening. That the gospel, that me as a preacher, I have nothing to say to you tonight. And the gospel has nothing to say to you tonight. Unless you are willing to take your place as guilty in God's courtroom. That's where our catechism began with us, my friends. The gospel says nothing to a person who thinks he's righteous in himself. The gospel has nothing to say to a Pharisee. But the gospel, my friends, speaks this evening to the person in the corner of the temple who strikes upon his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Is that your place this evening? You must give me an answer this evening, my friends. Because we can take all kinds of things on our lips. And we can profess this and that and the next things. And Jesus is my Savior, this, and we can sing all the songs. But until we have taken our place before God's courtroom, and until we have acknowledged the justice of God in our own condemnation, the gospel has nothing to say to us. It's meaningless to us. My friends, I had an old pastor who used to say that God brings us in our life to sign our own death sentence. To sign our own death sentence. That when the justice of God brings the charges, as we've read them in Romans 3, and he places them before us, that our mouth goes closed. Or are you still trying to defend yourself tonight, my friends? Are you still trying to say, I'm not that bad, I'm not, I'm not worthy of hell? My friends, take your place before God this evening. Take your place in God's courtroom. Acknowledge the justice of his charges against you. And then the gospel opens up to you in all its beauty and all its splendor. But until we come to that place, well, you know what Paul would say. Where is boasting, he would say. Where is boasting? When I stand before God, my friends, condemned, when I, by God's grace, am led to sign my own death sentence and to agree with the justice of God, where is boasting? Where is boasting, my friends, to such a sinner who acknowledges that he is lost and that God's justice, that God's punishment is just? Where is boasting? There cannot be such thing as a proud Christian, my friends, if we've really seen our place in God's courtroom. 
But now to such a person, my friends, who acknowledges the justice of God, who says and cries out of the, of the brokenness of his own heart, God be merciful to me, the sinner. God displays a righteousness. He holds that up to you this evening, my friends. Oh, what a precious gift. Can you see it? There's nothing more beautiful in all the world, my friends, to a condemned sinner than to see that God says, sinner, sinner, a righteousness. You need it. You can't possibly survive without it. You'll go lost without it. But here's a righteousness, my friends, a righteousness that is a gift and that is freely given and that is perfect in every respect. There's not the slightest flaw in it. And it's for you, freely. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to go down into the depths of the earth. Why, you can just reach forth, my friends, the empty hand of faith, and you can take that righteousness. And before God's courtroom, you'll hear the glorious pronouncement, not guilty. Not guilty. That, my friends, is music in a sinner's ear. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. That's the hymn that we sing, isn't it? My friends, this is, the, this is the truth of the gospel. And this is why I said tonight, this is the pinnacle. This is the peak of the catechism. Again, it does not get any higher than this. It does not get any more blessed. There is no higher privilege for a person but to receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. My third application is to live out of this reality. My friends, you can't possibly have stood before the cross of Christ, before God's courtroom, and seen his righteousness given to you. And you can't look at sin the same way, can you? You know, I remember uh, on a, on a uh, website, John Piper would take questions from people. And somebody had written John Piper and asked him uh, how to overcome this certain sin he was struggling with. And John Piper made a striking comment. He said, my dear friend, think of that sin as what drove the nails into Christ's feet. That sin, your sin, put Christ on the cross. Boy, now I, I look at sin differently, don't I? Now we look at it with a holy hatred, with a holy indignation. That's what it means to live out of this reality. When we see what Christ has done in my place, when we see the perfect spotless righteousness that he's given to me when I stood most in need of it, then, then we change, my friends. That's a revolutionary change that comes in the life of a person. Never can leave you the same. It never leaves you the same. My friends, that's what I, I hope that you can, you can see something of the beauty and the glory of the gospel as the catechism gives us, that I am righteous in Christ before God and all that that implies and all that that entails for the Christian person. I hope, my friends, I may have been able to speak a little of it this evening. And that you will sense something of the beauty and the glory of it as you step out those doors and go on to your life this week. May God bless it to us for his name's sake. Amen. Almighty God and merciful Father, the gospel is something that we never can get enough of, that we never can plumb the depths of it, where we never can understand what it even means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we pray that young and old this evening would be able to taste something of the beauty and of the glory of this truth and of this reality. Lord, please remember us. Keep us close to you this evening. Bless us, Lord. Bless our families. Will you bring us back together again in the coming Lord's Day? 
And may your name receive the glory and the honor from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's turn now to number 456. Number 456 out of the red hymnal. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. We'll sing the five verses of number 456 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.